0: InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from the 11FS office in WeWork London. I'm Sarah Koshansky from 11FS and I'm joined by Deloitte's own Nigel Bosch. How are you doing today, Nigel? I'm delightful.
1: <laughs>
0: um, so today's show is going to be looking at fraud insurance and how new technology can be used to reduce it. Um, to talk about this with us, we're joined by some fantastic guests. We're joined by Greg Brown from Oxbow Partners, David Hartley from SAS Global and George Herbert from Friss. So um, could you guys give us a quick summary about what you and your companies do before we start? Uh, Greg, should we start with you?
2: Hi, yeah, I'm Greg. I'm a partner at Oxbow Partners. We're an insurance-only consulting business, probably best known for our work in insure tech and innovation
0: cool david
3: hi and i'm david uh i'm a global director for sas institute and i spend my life uh working with insurance companies about how they can use analytics to detect fraud
4: brilliant and george my name is george george herber from fris uh, a dutch company located in utrecht which is hard to pronounce i guess for english people And uh, I'm responsible for the business development of our solution in the Nordics, Scandinavia and Finland, and quite recently here in the UK.
0: Brilliant. Okay, so let's make a start. Um, I'm going to start with a few stats that we've dug out because I think it'll help you guys, uh, will help the listeners get a, a broader picture of what we're talking about here. So, um, the FBI estimates that the total cost of insurance fraud in the US is more than forty billion dollars per year, um, which translates to increased premiums of around four hundred to seven hundred dollars per year for the average US family. So, fraud is is not only impacting insurers; it's also impacting you know genuine consumers. Um, in the UK, meanwhile, uh, insurers uncovered more than one hundred and thirty thousand fraudulent claims valued at 1.7 billion a few years ago. Um, and again, that adds up to another fifty pound to all policies per household. So the point here, it, this is this is a big problem, right guys? This is not small fry. Who wants to who wants to comment on that?
3: Maybe I'll start. I mean I, I started working in the insurance industry over thirty years ago and we were finding fraud then. I think the difference is, I think fraud's always been around. I think the key difference today is insurance companies, because of wanting to reduce operating expenses, have decided that they really want to take it on, Uh, as you've already indicated. uh, They historically have passed it on to us in the premiums that we pay.
1: I think technology generally has a massive role to both help prevent and is a cause of it. So whether you're talking for cash for crash gangs or dash cams being used or whatever else – technology has a, a real important role here and we'll come into it as we as we go through the discussion i'm sure about why or how people are actually using technology to f- um, play the system i guess yeah i think that's fair
0: yeah i mean it's um, clearly a big problem is it more of a problem in some types of insurance than others so do you see more of it in contents or auto or pet
2: well in the uk the vast majority is in motor so it's around 60 percent of fraud in those areas and then you've got liability and property are the next two biggest
0: and what's liability and property for the lay the layperson?
2: so liability uh, so property is obviously things like home insurance liability um is now you're asking me these technical questions <laughs> yeah slip and trip and all that kind of stuff
0: okay what about you george where do you do you see more of it or where do you
4: i work a lot in uh, scandinavia and their motor is of course one of the biggest ones i recently heard a nice story of a norwegian company uh, where somebody claimed damage to his car. And then he asked, what would it mean for my premium? And then the guy withdraw his uh, claim. And then suddenly, six weeks later, he came with a new claim. And uh, I guess how there was the damage which was there before also. So he, he combined damages to, uh, to make sure that uh, he got his uh, his
1: money. I think we've got to differentiate between the non-fraud fraudster and the I'm out to get you and make money from this. And they're the ones that we see in the papers for ghost broking or for cash for crash whatever else. But, you know, the spilling of red wine on the carpet, oh, it's on more of the carpet, oh, it's on more of the sofa or whatever else, technically is a fraudulent claim. So we just got to work out what bits that we're after in, in the market. Are we looking to stop that sort of coverage? Or are, is our wording too tight in the first instance to go, actually, it was just that one thing, and we're only going to replace that one thing? Or are we moving into the point where actually we, all we should be focused on is the criminal gangs that are adamant on taking um, hundreds of thousands of pounds out and defrauding end customers as well? So there's a real difference, right? Surely you've got to look at the numbers. And so, the I mean, the
2: organised crime, whilst it gets the biggest press attention, isn't the biggest chunk of fraud, certainly in the UK. It's about a quarter of the fraud. So, yes, it's important that that is tackled i mean partly for pr purposes that the industry if not seen to tackle these things will undermine and obviously insurance is not always the most respected industry but i think i mean you do have to you you can't ignore the three quarters of it which is which is the the kind of the white collar crime as you might call it i think
3: the argument's always been about the cost the cost of detecting that fraud and certainly i mean I, i was working with a bulgarian insurer recently and We found one nice person. There's no excesses or deductibles in in Bulgaria for some strange reason. And he had made 13 claims in a year. Uh, We assume one a month to supplement his, his salary. And the second one because of the Orthodox Christmas in January.
0: So you mean he was paying himself by making insurance claims, basically? Additional
3: income. (laughs) And you put in for 100 euros, or equivalent in Bulgarian, and you got 100 euros. So it all went below the radar and you absolutely wouldn't find those necessarily. But if you look at the data in a different way, suddenly that becomes more interesting.
0: So so it sounds like motor is one of the biggest ones. Um, I mean, an interesting one to me that, that I know Greg and I have talked about before is as well, gadget insurance. So all these kind of new insurers that are coming out and saying, well, insure just your MacBook or your phone or your bike That sounds to me like that's got huge potential for fraud in it as well. It
4: does, yeah. And uh, there is a nice story about an insurance company I work with who bought a lot of new uh, iPhones, fives or six, as soon as they realized that the new iPhone was coming on the market. So everybody was claiming his fallen iphone and then the insurance company said you are so lucky we still have the iphone five or six (laughs) available yeah but that that's when you have a clear picture of who are the people who do the frequent claiming stuff so uh then you know who who will come with a claim and you can do all kinds of things like like notching making them aware uh that 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 you know there, there will be a claim. There is a nice story of a German company who sends a letter with a protective box for your phone and they send a letter like, hey, you had some bad experience the last two years with your phone. We will help you too. To prevent and and this stuff, this nudging is really something insurance companies do because they have insights from their data. Who are the people who probably will do a claim?
1: And let's dig into motor because it's come up quite a few times, a, a bit more detail. And if you get, again again looking over the years, fraud has gone from at point of claim to to bring it as much forward as possible through to point of application. Are you guys able to talk further about how technology has helped change that from waiting for too long to look at the thing and go, actually, we know there's fraudulent information in here from free text in the claim field all the way through to actually using external data to go, hey, Nigel's a bit fraudulent based on these sort of factors that we've got going forward?
3: I guess a a catch-22. I think also technology encourages some fraud types. So the ability to go onto a website and game. We call it customer gaming, the premium by changing
1: the underwriting factors. It's in a garage, it's not in a garage. Fronting
3: and all this. So there's a great, the UK Institute of Actuaries did a, uh, a case study some years ago. I still use it, I'm afraid, because it, you know, it literally somebody reduced their premium from £3,500 to £300.
0: You mean by saying their car was registered at this address and it was kept in a garage? And My mum the main driver. Yeah, he, yeah. exactly. Introduced
3: Things. his dad. We think it was his dad, and then flipped um, and made his dad the main driver. Exactly. And so I think you know technology can be both a blessing. It encourages different fraud types. I, I wrote a white paper some time ago. Why they call white papers? I don't understand because they got black ink <laughs> on them. Called fraudsters love digital because just because of the fact that I think removing people sometimes the ability to lie to a screen is really simple even maybe on a phone but face to face it's much more difficult for most most average people so i think i think there's certainly technology can help detect but i think it, it can also be an encouragers of different type fraud types and some of the emerging ones we're seeing today
2: i was gonna say quite a lot of what we've talked about so far i mean so a lot of people talk about ai and artificial intelligence and machine learning in fraud detection. Quite a lot of the examples we've talked about so far don't need massively complicated processes and technology. I mean, the example of the multiple quotes getting it down from 3000 to £300, that's by saying, hang on a minute, if you fiddled with the data more than once or twice, this looks fraudulent, we're going to refer you through to an underwriter or just decline your quote online. Or give you a very high price.
1: Or give you a very high price. It's it's there and available for you, but you've got to pay £3,000 for it, I'm sorry. Unless you're a
2: fraudster using multiple IP addresses and, and spoofing MAC addresses and all the kind of complicated technical stuff that you can do to pretend to be lots of people, actually it's a fairly simple solution to that problem.
0: Well, so, what type of fraud does need what, what's more complicated to detect then? so if we're going to talk about AI and machine learning and the applications of these technologies, what are we talking about there? What's that looking for if it's not those kinds of
3: As an analytics company, I'd obviously want to say how wonderful machine learning is, but I think the, <laughs> I think the reality is that we see I see four areas that machine learning is is really being used in, in in reality today. I think that the first one is is to is to use machine learning to wait an alert and what we mean by that is we've detected that somebody's done something and we want to ensure that the investigators look at it so you you can use machine learning to do that reduce false positives it's great for that Discover new emerging threats in the data, stuff that looks interesting. It may be fraud, may not be. Maybe claims leakage, maybe other things. And then the final one is kind of extending the use cases into things like using digital photographs and using machine learning and, and some of the deep learning techniques to start to say, not, maybe not so much fraud, but estimating from digital images what the damage is and maybe being able to simulate. I think George used a great example before of somebody that came back with a subsequent damage it, if there are different ends of the car, maybe it's physically impossible to do those things or easily impossible. So I, I think certainly I see those four areas of, of really adding value into how an insurance company can detect fraud.
1: You can probably break it down further as well. We've done some work around what parts of AI would you use at what parts of the cycle. So whether it's vision-based, natural language, voice or machine learning. So um, you talked about uh, having a photograph. Again, we've seen the examples have been in the press of people having... People were uh, photograph gangs, basically, that will give or defraud the photograph that they then submit to you. So how do you know that the image you've received and it's been uploaded digitally hasn't been altered? Uh, and there's some great examples out there. If you've got five minutes on a lunch break or you need a laugh, jump onto YouTube and type in dash cam cameras or claims. And you see people either, you know, purposely jumping onto bonnets to claim there's damage to the car. And they've hit an individual. And there's some great what? things why would you claim you'd hit a person well, <laughs> there'd be a police record the person is then claiming damage that they've been hit and they're all in the same group or gang and therefore making claims against an insurance company and there's hot spots in the UK that are noticed for doing this that are certain areas are rife for cash for crash type gangs one of my favourites was a lady who had hit this person and she you know she felt awful about it could see the guy on the ground because he'd obviously jumped to the car and then fall on the ground and then um, she, does, she, she gets out and goes you do realise there's a dash Cam and, and, and up he gets and runs off. So um, there's some great examples where technology is also being leveraged to go, let's catch you guys at the outset. Of course, that, you know, places like Germany don't allow dash cams in cars.
0: Let's bring it. So I just want to bring it back around to the AI point. Cause George, I think you your com- the company you are representing today does quite a lot with AI as well. Wh- which areas do you use it in?
4: Yeah, well, I like the uh, comment uh, that um, it's actually a combination of what we call expert rules, uh, because we have so much knowledge uh, as we are sitting here together around the table about how people can behave to bring in a claim with some risky kind of character. Uh, And we use the combination of expert rules and uh, AI, predictive models, well, all the usual stuff, It turned out recently we were working with a a big insurance company who wanted to do the famous proof of concept.
0: (laughs) Oh yes, we know all about them. We all
4: know them. And it's a great way to show how things work. And it turned out that when we only used the AI stuff, we didn't have the the best results. It was the combination of expert rules, like saying, hey, this is a youngster with a BMW uh, with a high-powered car and some probabilities we know from the data which is three to five years uh, with all all kinds of indications so yeah i believe in analytics it's great stuff but uh, when you look at the possibilities to make use of what we call expert rules this is also pretty good stuff
0: so the machines aren't going to replace uh, the underwriters yet
4: then <laughs> no and there there is this nice story from a company we work in in latin america where when they see that a claim has a suspicious character the claim handler calls the person, and he can give a number from one to 10. If he has spoken to the guy, he can say, well, this was a suspicious talk. I give him an eight, (laughs) and the eight adds up to the model to make the prediction if this guy is really fraudulent or not. And it turns out that the call with the number usually is a very strong indication. So the software, the technology shows this is probably fraudulent, but the one-to-one contact makes the difference. Yeah, it's the extra. And there's a real event.
3: At the end of the day, if somebody's done fraud, they actually did something. And that's what the investigator wants to know. And if we I, 100% with George, expert rules and machine learning can help mm-hmm. put that. But the investigator wants to know, why am I looking at this in our nomenclature, this alert how do I understand that? How do I understand that? And then how can I action it?
1: Your point is interesting as well about vision. You said, you know, whether the photographs or you it's always to type something in. It's okay to default if I'm typing in. But if you're looking at something, and actually our friends over at Lemonade will talk to the fact the claim process involves the, the webcam looking at you. Back to your point, if you're making a claim, you're unlikely to lie to yourself. And now it's on record, not just you going, ah, well, it's just the sofa and this. You're now recording yourself as you do it. So really interesting use of behavioral economics in it.
0: So, I mean, interesting to to go to your point, Nigel, as well, to go back to kind of different countries, obviously, different, you know, there's different types of behaviour in different countries. And if you're going to be detecting, uh, you know, insurance fraud there, you're going to have to understand different cultural differences. I mean, we we had sort of a bit of commentary earlier before we got started about different types of fraud um, in different places. I know you had some stories about China, Yeah Yeah, well,
3: I mean, it's very exportable. So uh, we have five insurance companies. Fraud's exportable. Yeah, it is. So we have five insurance companies in Greece who are customers, and two of them don't call whiplash or bodily injury claims that they call them British claims, because Brits went on vacation to Greece, to the Greek islands, took cars, staged accidents, tried to make claims and so you go, hang on If you look at things like, you mentioned I think before about ghost broking, probably most of the people listening to this are Brits, so I'm I'm a Brit, so I I apologise to the rest of the world. I think that's something else we invented. So actually a lot of these things are very exportable, and and indeed we've got uh, one of the largest insurance companies in China. We process 60 million motor claims a year through our software, and we see the similar types of organised fraud terminologies there that we see in just about everywhere else, and we've got clients in Russia, also down in LATAM, Canada, US.
1: A lot, there's a lot of commonality. There's just these nuances of difference that locals put on. Uh. So the process of insurance is the same pretty much everywhere you go, from taking out a, a policy to cover a particular risk or set of risks, through to notifying a claim, through to making a payment. And all they are doing, I say they, all the folks they're doing are committing fraud is expediting the process from ethanol through to payment in a way that guarantees their path through whoa, that process. Well,
0: you just did terminology thing again. Go oh, back sorry. what through to what?
1: <laughs> so from ethanol, from first notification of loss.
0: Okay, so that's when yes. I call my insurer and say my car was stolen, I dropped Correct, my Correct, or you
1: go online and make the first notification to the insurance company. Sorry, <laughs> folks, thank you, Sarah. Uh, all the way through to the payment, there's a bunch of stages in the middle, and all we're trying to do in the fraud process is to minimise the points at which we can then over-exact Exaggerate, under-exaggerate, bend the truth to make sure that I'm guaranteeing the payment. Now, more often than not, insurance companies are there to make payments. I think we pay something like nine out of ten claims in many instances. Again, go back to Daniel Schreiber, they'll they'll open up with their um, urban dictionary definition for insurance that they'll... T- take your money to make a promise and never want to pay you. Genuinely don't believe that's true. For most of the insurers that I work with, they are there to help you out and get you out of potentially some life-changing situations. But there will always be the fraud to the criminal that wants to go the extra mile and make sure they get payments for things that they really shouldn't have done in the first place.
2: Actually, that was a thing looking in the kind of analysis on it. One of the biggest reasons insurers have said for not putting as much investment into fraud reduction is the risk of false positives. And there there seems to be a big concern that we'll put in all of this stuff. And actually what we'll do is we'll trip up the 90% plus of people who are not trying to defraud us in order to try and catch the 10%.
0: So that's the risk of, so in trying to prevent fraud, you actually piss off your genuine customers?
3: Yeah. yeah, And also yeah. the media. I mean, when I was a young man working in insurance, there was an insurer called General Accident that used to have a line as, we won't make a drama out of a crisis. Might be in commercial union. It was right? commercial that union. Were, there you commercial go. Union. And that was true until they accused a sweet old lady of insurance fraud and it ended up on the front page of the Sun newspaper. <laughs> they made a drama out of a crisis.
1: Wasn't that Michael Winner as well? Was he a sweet old lady? No. (laughs) I am so lost, guys.
0: I understood where you were going
1: with that. And I brought in Michael Winner. My God. But getting back to your point, though, Gray, you're you're spot on. And to get rid of that, what we've tried to do as an industry, I think, is bring forward the fraud process from claim through to application. So back to our point earlier, when Sarah's filling out her application for her next holiday insurance plan, we make sure that we get as much information and predict fraud at that point. Because if you get it there, you're less likely to make a claim later. It's one that we consider to be fraudulent,
2: and there's also benefits of technology for for doing fraud detection in a way that is hidden. I mean, I suppose at the moment, in for example, Moto claims talking to the person on the phone, they are a they are an automated. I mean, it's a person, but an automated fraud detection device. So whilst you feel like you're telling them about the the incident, actually a lot of what they're doing is capturing data, listening carefully to detect fraud. I mean, the example in in banking where I think it first direct have announced that when you speak to them on the phone, they use what you they use the natural conversation sent to me back to voice AI. To identify whether it's you. So rather than saying we now need to you've called us and now or we've called you and we now need to, to find out
1: who you are it just happens as part of the natural conversation. And that just seems important. I think HMRC, sorry to HMRC did something similar for benefit fraud a while back and actually used voice analytics to determine sentiment or tone or hesitation and all that sort of stuff to work out whether or not people were actually being honest against their claims. I mean, over at the Deloitte guys have built something out of our risk advisory tool called BEAT, behavioural analytics tool, which captures sentiment and understands people's, whether they're actually lying to you or not, and then applies a fraud model to, to, to that whole process to go, based on these things, this is what we think this uh, call is about you either you escalated it for, to someone else further or it's good, it's got the green lights, proceed yeah.
3: It's it kind of interesting though isn't it because all this technology is great and every, I agree with everything you've said but most insurance, a lot of the insurance companies I work with, particularly in Northern Europe and in the US, uh, Canada are actively looking to settle 60% plus-ish of claims on the same day without ever speaking to a person. So whilst all this, this stuff is good, I just wonder If in some insurance companies, it's kind of almost coming a bit too late uh, because they don't often, to settle a claim, you don't have to talk to people now.
0: So you mean that by automating that process, which is designed to make their processes more efficient and save them money, they've actually... Caused a problem. They've actually created an opportunity for fraud. I think
1: opportunity is the right word. The, yeah. Isn't that the flip side here? Back to Greg's point about numbers: is we have to work out what the item is. So if we're if we're going after phone fraud and the phone's a hundred quid and it costs us a thousand quid for an investigation, just pay it out, get it done as soon as possible. But don't, in essence, reveal your rules of the game to the general public. If your claims for a hundred thousand pounds or could have a, a, a reserve if the amount we then put aside for this claim of hundred thousand pounds. Then of course you want to make sure it's legitimate and accurate all the way through that cycle. But a hundred quid versus a thousand pounds to investigate it, just don't do it. Just pay it, get it done and focus the ones that matter. Yeah, just
3: make certain they don't do it twelve times
1: in a year. <laughs> Thirteen.
3: Okay.
2: <laughs> but then that's I mean technology then comes in because you I mean right in dem, so they are a what is it called call startup who actually they they would probably tell me off for saying that because they've been around for a number of years. But what they do is they try and get some of that the human element into an automated process. So again, they like lemonade, they use video because you're less likely to to lie if you can see yourself. They also do things like at the start of the process, and I think lemonade do this as well. They ask you whether you're going to tell the truth at the start of the process no, rather start, than the yeah. end of the process.
0: And it's actually and it goes back to what George was saying, it's actually behavioral. Um, yeah. it's understanding human behavior. So what we're trying to do with all this technology is replicate or understand human behavior faster than The humans can do it. Well, it's because the
2: vast majority of fraudsters are people like you and me who who aren't in naturally criminals. They just It's just easy for them to do it, it's and the they just think well, they'll get away with it. It's, it's opportunistic. to exactly. which... which but, major, but then you yes. go
1: to... So I was watching TV the other night uh, with Mrs Walsh, and we were watching, is it The Good Wife? And there was a health insurance trial that was going on in the legal case, and the guy was being brought on to uh, the jury and said, have you ever smoked? And his health application said, no, I'm not a smoker. Or have you ever smoked in the last 12 months? No, he hasn't. They then grabbed the picture from Facebook or whatever it was supposed to be and said, isn't that a picture of you, sir, with a cigarette in your hand? and all of a sudden their claim for their baby, whatever they were doing, was, was null and void and they couldn't get the insurance recovery they wanted. So it's really interesting how social tools or social um, things like this are now being used to go, you've just tweeted that you've left your window open, you've then made an insurance claim, yet you've told me you've le- locked your property wherever else it might be. There's loads of these things out there when you start to aggregate all this data that exists and what you share and do, that will then...
0: Well, there's, there's questions there as well, Though, because we talked about this the other week, is firstly, are people aware that that's happening? And secondly, as an insurer, you have to be very careful what information you are using. So if you have lied on a form, then that's fine. Like You lied on a form and, and you, know, you were caught out. But if actually what we were talking about was mortgages, but if actually what happens is your insurer says, well, I saw you tweeting, you're like, I didn't give you permission to look at my tweets. Like, How is that? So there is a very fine line there. And I think it leads into kind of one of the other types of technologies I wanted to talk about, which was actually IoT and sensors. So you're talking about health insurance, you've got somebody who says, yes, I run 10k every day and I don't smoke and I don't drink or whatever it is.
1: This is not you then?
0: Excuse me? <laughs> 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 I don't know what you're accusing me
1: of. I definitely don't smoke. There we go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, I didn't say I didn't eat cake, guys. Like that wasn't, that's not kind of that rude. My point being that if you want, that, you know, there are different sources of data that you can get it from. So people may be willing to wear a Fitbit they may not be willing to let you look at their Twitter feed. So, I mean, I guess my question is, I think there's applications for these Internet of Things devices as well, but how confident would you feel about introducing them or, you know, letting them, linking them to policies, shall we say? Well, I
3: mean, the, the whole thing of, of, of obviously uh, black boxes in cars is actually something, I think there's something like 12% now of private vehicles have a pay-as-you-drive type box in their vehicle that in effect tracks your movements and and um, i suspect in Ger- i know in germany that they're not that's not very not much liked but that if that data is made publicly available or as part of your policy you subscribe to that then you're giving the insurance company the ability to look how you rounded that corner before you turned the car over
2: it's interesting actually because as manufacturers put that more as integrated oem in the vehicle Well, who owns that data? I mean, that's a much bigger question, but it's linked to the Facebook thing. I mean, obviously GDPR, as of last week, gives consumers much more control over their own data. And obviously was it two years ago when Admiral and Facebook had a bit of a tussle about use of use of data, although actually that is a slightly different example for reasons I go go into here. But I mean, that's just it's just what will happen and where will they draw the line? And will you have to actually ask for more data as part of the the relationship you specific relationship you have with the insurer
1: to make sure they can then use it at the point of claim but bring it bring it back to fraud so would we use devices wearables telematics boxes etc to um, provide a more accurate premium based on the risk that i provide the insurance company i think the evidence is clearly there and it's growing It's slower in some things like telematics the fitbits with the vitalities of the world or apple watch is great what about when I apply my Fitbit or my Apple Watch to my dog and let my dog go for a run, well, and I mean. that still takes that still takes place?
0: That's what I mean. Like that's what I'm saying about detecting fraud. So there's two different things you can do with it. One is you say on your health application form, "Yeah, I run 10k," and they go, "Okay, well here's a Fitbit proof it." And then the second, so that's one type of fraud that yep. you're preventing there. And then the second type of fraud is goes back to that point we made earlier about how technology actually enables fraud. So yes, you could tie it to the And there's
1: generally sites out there that you can go to that allow you to cheat or game your wearable devices. So attaching it to a drill, for example, and turning it on gets you lots and not. We've I'm all seen that Big
3: Bang Theory episode where they did exactly <laughs> that, yeah.
1: There are so many hacks out there. If you really want to game the system, my view there, obviously, is if you're doing that, you really are cheating yourself rather than anyone well, else.
0: Yeah. what's the point of wearing a Fitbit? Okay, that's been a really interesting conversation, and we've touched on lots of things. I'm going to ask each of our, our three guests, what's the most interesting thing about kind of technology and the future of fraud as far as you're concerned, either like right now or five years in the future? You know, what, what's the kind of the one thing that you really want to get across? He wants to go first?
4: <laughs> well, I think that image recognition is, is something which will grow and grow uh, because um, people send in a picture of a damaged car and is it photoshopped or not? The moment that you can do with some smart algorithms to, to find this, these kind of pictures, you can help the claim handlers in such a way that they, they, they are not able to look at a picture and see if it's photoshopped, but if a system can do it for them, it it will make life so much easier for them. So I think that's that will be one of the one of the, the big new ones. big ones. Yeah. Okay.
2: Greg? Um I think I mean in slightly broader terms, the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning on the increasingly large data sets obviously caveat the accessibility of that data which we were just talking about i think that becomes really really interesting and that raises then a a subsequent question around governance and transparency these things are not that transparent whereas expert rules are very well defined and insurers and regulators don't like black boxes and so what will happen as that is used more because the technology add value but how does that fit in with the the robust processes that insurers and regulators demand
0: and David.
3: Well, I think you two have both chosen excellent ones. I would have gone for yours first, George, and then I would have gone <laughs> for yours. So, thank you. Third, number three, bronze bronze medal. Um, I, I, I guess that the whole the whole issue of how we're able to enhance our usage and visualization of data is something that I, I know a lot of the insurance companies we work with are very interested in. Absolutely, because. I think we mustn't lose sight on who the target is of a lot of the work we do, which is the ex-policeman working in the insurance company in the investigative team. So how can we visualise and present to him, and they are mainly hims, I'm afraid, if there's any hers out there, I apologise. But they are mainly hims, they are, there are. How do we push over to them all of this wonderful machine learning, all these expert rules, all this... And how do we present that in a way that they can consume and make decisions on uh, within the investigative process? I think that, that certainly is a, is a challenge that kind of companies like Frizz and SAS are trying to, trying to address now.
0: How do you use technology to help the humans? Exactly. Nigel, any predictions? you got a crystal ball with you today?
1: I think data and transparency of data will be our saviour, if I'm honest. We talked about IoT and everything else. We could go down a rabbit hole on whether the data is legitimate or not legitimate. I just think that the the abundance of what we're getting will mean it's easier for us to leverage that, providing we've got permission to do so, to detect these sorts of things, and will drive a clear divide between those who are fraudulent and want to be fraudulent versus those who are accidentally fraudulent.
0: Okay. Brilliant. Well, that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you so much to everyone for joining us. Um, so where can our listeners find out more about you? Do you have a website, a Twitter handle, an email address? Uh, what about you, Greg?
2: Best place to look is probably our website, oxbopartners.com or on my Twitter handle at browngreg2.
0: Brilliant. Uh, David?
3: www.sas.com, not the airline. How many years have you been doing that? <laughs> Forever. That's a practice line.
4: Uh, George, how about you? two places to recommend of course our site uh, fris with a double s at the end eu and there is a new initiative it's called fraudtalks.com community of people who are fighting fraud are getting together there and share all their knowledge and stories so uh, fraudtalks.com really nice place to be
0: that's super interesting Um, how about you Nigel
4: at Nigel Walsh
1: on Twitter
0: and I'm at Sarah Koshansky on Twitter so next up we're going to take a look at some of the top stories in the world of insurance this week so the first story up today comes from the BBC um, and the headline is Sharenting puts young at risk of online fraud. So for those who don't know, Sharenting is where parents share personal information about their children on social media. And apparently, it's the weakest link in rising uh, online fraud and identity theft. Warns Barclays. Um, the banks say parents are compromising their children's future financial security with so much online sharing, and forecast that by 2030, it could cost
1: almost 670 million pounds in online fraud. Uh, what do you think uh, about I, this, Nigel? I so I think this is really real, and as a parent of young kids, I think the fraud piece is interesting. I thought, I also think the security and, and protection of your kids is really important obviously. My wife is adamant that there's no pictures or I don't post pictures of the kids on Twitter or public sites. Of course they're on Facebook for our friends or parents and what's not but um, I guess you trust your friends accordingly as as you would expect but to put them out there in the open wild it almost feels sad that we're in a society that you don't want pictures of your daughter or son that that could be used in, in various different ways and there's uh, whole hosts of examples out there but the fraud piece is interesting I mean identity theft is real and if you've got a name a date of birth an address or a location then there's nothing stopping you using those in, in, in a wrong way the final point to this one is when your kid turns of age and is you know 15 14 12 or 18 and says dad you've got such a footprint of me now online that's there forever how do I get rid of it yeah so there's a I think there's a whole host of issues with this actually that does make you sit back and think twice
0: yeah, I mean, just thinking about my friends who've had kids, all you need is that, um, those beautiful birth notices, you know, X, Y, Z, born at this date, this hospital, weighing, you know, eight pounds, whatever. Instantly, you've got an identity.
1: We'll know your maiden name, we'll know your date of birth. I mean, you've given away most of your security questions straight away. It's quite, it's amazing how easy it is to uh, to get past, I think.
0: Yeah, so I think that's definitely one, one that I think is people are becoming more aware of. But I think, um, again, it, you know, you can't really publicise that enough. So the next story today is from Insurance Business Mag. It's Uber partnering AXA um, to provide driver coverage across Europe. So the coverage has been extended to afford Uber drivers on the continent optimum protection say AXA. Um, Come next month partner protection will be provided to both drivers and couriers in European markets. It's funded by Uber really interestingly at no cost to the partners. Um, Protections include accident, injury, illness as well as maternity and paternity benefits. So it's a broader package than just sort of motor insurance. Um, According to Uber partner protection will instantly cover over 150,000 independent partners, which I think is what they mean by drivers, um, across Europe starting on the 1st of June. So
1: So this has been in the news quite a lot, not just the story, but the overall um, shift to how insurance applies to the sharing economy and gig economy. We're just about to release at Deloitte a report with Lloyds of London Um, on the sharing economy and the impact of that of course with many of the providers that I mentioned uh, included where we interviewed over 8,000 people and stuff. I think it's a really interesting area because insurance is constantly looking with how the business models have changed, what we do and how we provide cover. So this um, from, from AXA in this instance is a really interesting move. Actually, I think later in the week, they also announced a partnership with Blah Blah Car. So again, I think AXA positioned themselves as a, an insurer for the platform economy. So I think really, really important. The wording is brilliant. They say you're independent, back to an independent gig worker, but you're not on your own.
0: Yeah, and it, it's, it's I mean, it's for the insurance industry, for something like AXA, this is a whole new demographic. You know, this is, it, it sounds the way Uber phrases it, like, oh, we're looking after our drivers, but, you know, they win because they car are all protected and they don't have to deal with the, you know, the fallout of that. And AXA wins because it's a whole new market.
1: Yeah, without question. Or a, or a different market where you would have a previously for private car. You've now got it in a, in a different way. I think we've talked in the news before about benefits being lost as a gig worker. So, again, picking up that angle of it's very important. I think it's like twenty two or £25,000 of pension benefits lost if you were a gig worker rather than a full-time employee. Now picking up that slack as an insurance piece is really interesting.
0: I wonder if this is just a, this is I literally don't know the answer to this. But if you own an, a car, because when you're an Uber driver, you own the car. Uber doesn't own it. Do you have to have both personal insurance, or do you think this is enough? Like, would this be enough? Would you you, have to have well, two you new need policies?
1: if you're doing a commercial role, you need both personal and commercial insurance, which is where people like Metromar, for example, uh, used to automatically switch their insurance for com- from commercial to personal and vice versa if there's a passenger on board. So they're again using technology to go, hey, passenger on board, flip to commercial policy. No passenger, flip back to. Personal.
0: that's really interesting so the next story up comes from insurance business mag again um, and the head line is the smart tech insurers aren't sure about and I'll be honest with you I'm not sure about this technology either it's smart locks um, so this piece makes the point that they could be at risk of hacking which is kind of why I'm not happy with it either the quote from the piece is um, the question isn't whether insurers are happy or unhappy about smart locks it's whether they can adequately respond to the growing consumer adoption of a technology that presents them with both opportunities and risk um, that was from Michael Kostonis who's the global insurance practice lead at Accenture speaking to the Financial Times yeah I mean my personal concern Concerns are, I, I know these can be hacked. I've seen the stories. Um, from an insurer's perspective, it's that catch-up game again. It's yeah. like, oh goodness, how do we make sure we're using it and not also causing problems. It's
1: fascinating. Actually, the the actual original article was from our friend of the show, uh, Oliver Ralph. Oh, was it? Okay. So um, Oliver wrote this. Uh, It was picked up by lots of other outlets and so forth. Great story in that if you think about IoT and connected home, whether we're NEOS or we're what Amazon have purchased through some of the cameras and stuff they've got, we are slowly augmenting our homes today with new technology that, as you say, can be hacked. Now, hacking a fire alarm is one thing. No real major impact other than we might scare the life out of some people in the house hacking a lot gives you access to the property. And will policies have to change going forward if someone, if there's no longer a physical key and you've given the digital key to multiple people? And if that digital key gets stolen and they access the property through a stolen digital key or a proximity sensor or anything else, what does that do to the policy? I actually spoke to a couple of carriers about this specifically um, when Oliver was writing this. And I think it was more to do with the... If you're adding a sensor, like a leak bot, for example, to a pipe, it's done in a non-obtrusive way, as in you or I can go in, wrap it around my pipe, and it's done and active. Something like this requires a locksmith or a handyman to go around and change that lock. It's not something that you or I would take on ourselves, Mm -hmm. um, number one. Number two, back to your point about then hacking and and going a bit further. I think it's inevitable it will come. We're comfortable with this technology for a hotel room
0: yeah I mean it's interesting so there's another quote in here which is from Jenny Truman um, who's the head of connected homes and product innovation at direct line and I know Jenny listens to the show um, and she says that you know while they're they're focusing right now on preventative technology smart locks might fit there fit in with that at some point but we're not there yet and she goes on to point out that their customers don't want the smart locks so you know they're not going to go down that route yet if it's actually something that customers don't want
1: I agree and again hotels you were all comfortable with it whether we're using our phones to unlock the, the doors and stuff
0: interesting you say that I always put the chain on the, the um, hotel when I'm Inside. Do you know there's you know there's always a chain I've or never a never put a chain I've on. Always put the chain on.
1: I've walked into a room before with someone else in the room. That was really odd.
0: That's why I put the chain on. <laughs> <laughs> so our final story today comes from TechCrunch. Amazon has invested twelve million dollars in an Indian insure tech called Akko. So Akko is a digital only business aimed at disrupting the ten billion dollar insurance industry in India a lot of ins um, by leveraging the growth of internet across India to democratise coverage and develop more relevant products. Um, ACO confirmed Amazon's investment, taking their funding to $42 million raised to date. ACO has gone after big name partnerships in pursuit of internet economy deals, um, which primarily consists of e-commerce, ride hailing, travel site focused products. In April, ACO launched passenger insurance for Uber rival Ola's ride hailing service. So it sounds like um, this, again, going back to that kind of gig economy, internet economy is kind of why Amazon's interested in this.
1: I mean, I think this is fascinating. Um, China, Ping An, Zong An, all the Asian characters get a lot of press. I think India is underserved and under... Um, analyze from a market perspective you think what 1.3 billion people addressable market through technology and smartphones probably about 620 million people right now it is a massive opportunity so um, quite exciting quite geeky unfortunately on some of the stats but uh, I think it's a really interesting market Um, founder of this organization was former founder of Coverfox he's been there done it before Amazon were previously in a battle for Flipkart which then I think Walmart picked up Um, so how do we access that 600 million plus consumers, uh, really interesting opportunity, I think.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting move from Amazon as well, because as you said, they tried to go in with e-commerce direct and they just didn't get the cultural fit right. They just couldn't get into that market. So it's like Amazon, as you say, have, have recognised the opportunity, but they're just going at it in a different a different way because they're not going to give up on India.
1: Without question. I think the the gaffer analogy have been going for ages. The rumours Amazon are entering the market time and time again. They create no end of storms online with debate and what's not. But actually, they've been investing in insurance for quite a while in, in, different, in different ways. This is an, just one more of them.
0: Brilliant. Well, that wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thank you to all our guests. InsureTech Insider was hosted by me, Sarah Kashansky, and co hosted by Nigel Walsh. We were produced today by Laura Watkins with help from Petra Barisha, and our editor today was Michael Bailey. As always, you can find the show on Twitter at Instatech Insiders. And if you like what you've heard this week, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And please, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please reach out on Twitter or on email at podcasts
1: at 11 com.